This November, I'm going back to Italy, leading a food tour there, and I want to brush up on my Italian. And for that, I'm turning to Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, Sporkful listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash sporkful. That's half off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash sporkful today. You know, when I travel... I buy fabric, I buy art, and music. The slipcovers are from Ghana that I brought back from one of my trips, and uh, these are Asian fabrics that I brought back from uh, Macau, China. There's tons of wine and spirits and various things like that. Some people have one bar where their spirits are collected. I've counted three so far. (laughs) In this room. We in the red room is the real bar. Okay. <laughs> These are the, the the ancillary bars. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> this is the Sporkful. It's not for foodies. It's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. Today, I pay a visit to Alexander Smalls at his home in Harlem. He's a chef, cookbook author, restaurateur, opera singer, and legendary party host. Food and Wine magazine once wrote that if you get an invitation to Alexander Small's apartment, you make whatever schedule adjustments necessary to be able to go. The article went on, the food is sure to soothe and inspire, and his panache for anecdotes induces giggles and hollers the neighbors can hear. As soon as I walk into Alexander's apartment, I see signs of a creative life well-lived. The rooms are painted in rich oranges and reds. The walls are crowded with giant canvases, shelves piled high with books and artifacts brought back from world travels. And as you heard, there seems to be a bar in every corner. His kitchen has multiple refrigerators covered with photos like a giant collage. There are pictures of Alexander with people like Lionel Richie, Lena Horne, Toni Morrison, Maya Angelou, and LeVar Burton. But as unique as this apartment is, it's not the first space that Alexander has made his own. What were you like as a child? (laughs) Busy. (laughs) I was very, very busy. (laughs) Am I right? You said you you had your parents turn your room into a studio. I did. When you were like five or six. I was very serious. I decided at a very young age I needed a studio. And I'd seen on television where studios have couches and pianos and bookcases. And so all of that was put in my bedroom so I could really assume the role. Alexander grew up in Spartanburg, South Carolina, but he was close with his aunt and uncle who lived in Harlem. His uncle was a chef, and his aunt was a classical pianist. I started my first piano lessons with my aunt and started cooking with my uncle. And so, you know, at the age of four and five and six, I'm running around, you know, kind of seeing myself as a curator Uh, a a creator, um, an artist, if you will. And, you know, we used to listen to Shakespeare sonnets at night on the Victrola. Uh, My aunt would have played Record player. Record player, yes. And uh, so I would listen to Shakespeare and Langston Hughes and learn to recite those things. And they introduced me to opera. I mean, if you could imagine a, a child, you know, in the 60s in South Carolina, black child running around, you know, pretending to be an opera singer, that's how it all started. Right. What kinds of reactions did you get? Mixed. <laughs> <laughs> Alexander says nobody really knew what to do with him. 
He was one of the only black kids in his high school, and the only one of any race who was reciting Shakespeare sonnets and singing operettas. And it was not just a phase. Pretty soon, he was winning opera contests. Another creative outlet for him early on, food and cooking. Spartanburg, where Alexander grew up, is inland in South Carolina. But his family came from the coast. My father and my grandfather all hailed from Charleston and Beaufort, South Carolina. And essentially, low country gullah cooking is extremely distinctive. So the food of the low country, as we call it, was foundational in my home. For folks who aren't familiar with Gullah Geechee cuisine, what would that be? Well, they are missing it, aren't they? They are, yes. They need to get out and get familiar. <laughs> but it's a, it's a lot of seafood. It's a lot of game. It is a lot of stews, and uh, the food tends to be spicier. It really is very much an extension of West African cooking. For example, in West Africa, you'll have jollof rice, and in the Carolinas, uh, in the, or rather in the low country, you have red rice. So I grew up in a household of incredible cooks. And when you live in a small town, food is everything. You have to understand with respect to the African-American community, you know, food was currency. It was wealth. It was pride. I mean, they didn't own anything else. They had been kept out of the financial corporate institutions uh, where they could build wealth. They had to create wealth in different ways. And one of the ways they did that was, you know, Miss Millie's famous recipe for fried chicken. Miss Means made the best pound cake. Oh, my, have you had Miss Mildred's banana pudding? Those were what they could own. In 1970, Alexander left for college, then studied opera at the prestigious Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia. From there, his opera career began. I lived in London, I lived in Paris, I lived in Italy for three years, studied with the great masters. He also performed in the U.S. Here's Alexander in 1977 singing A Woman is a Sometime Thing from Porgy and Bess with the Houston Grand Opera. In between opera gigs, Alexander would come back to New York and cook. He started a catering company he called Small Miracle. But that was a side hustle. Opera was the focus. And Alexander worked with the greats. Hung out with Luciano Pavarotti. Hung out with Luciano and would babysit his kids um, and would cook with him. What was that like? It was amazing because, you know, he, he, he loved my cultural experience. He used to love to hear me sing uh, Yesterday. I would sit down at the piano, it was one of my songs, and I would, you know, the Beatles, Yesterday. And he would just love that. And then he would chime in and sing. With, so it was a great, it's a great memory. Um, but I mean, it was an incredible uh, time until it wasn't. This was the late 70s, and top opera companies were not offering lead roles to many Black people. When they did, it was usually only in one show. Porgy and Bess, which follows Black residents living in a tenement. As you heard, Alexander had already been in the Houston Grand Opera production of Porgy and Bess. He had been one of the youngest cast members. I looked around and I noticed that all this amazing talent, uh, African-American talent, and this was my first production, but many of them 
had made a whole career out of doing porgy and bess. You know, I just said a prayer to myself, Lord, please, I don't want to be that. As he neared his 40th birthday, Alexander auditioned for the Metropolitan Opera in New York, one of the most famous opera companies in the world. By this time, he had 15 years of experience under his belt, and he'd already won a Tony and a Grammy for the cast recording of that Houston production. The Met offered him a spot in its chorus, meaning not a leading part. He turned it down. He went home and drank a bottle of wine. It was my greatest fear realized, the glass ceiling. I couldn't go any further. And uh, the next morning, um, I started my restaurant. I decided that I was going to open a fine dining African-American restaurant in New York. Through my experience with opera or classical music, I understood that it was not important just to have a seat at the table. I had to own the table. I couldn't own an opera house, but I could own a restaurant. Coming up, Alexander builds his table. Then later, he cooks me a lunch for the ages. Stick around. Advertisements. Yummy. There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. To move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery. Whatever your reasons, having to figure out all the various housing market trends in your area may not be what you signed up for. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in. Realtors have the expertise to help you find the right price and navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. That's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. Just a quick note that we will not have an episode up next week, but if you're itching for more Sporkful, check out last week's episode. I'm live on stage in Brooklyn with Chitra Agarwal, founder of Brooklyn Deli, and Vanessa Pham, co-founder of Amsam. Both these companies make packaged foods inspired by Asian flavors. You know, it's not easy breaking into the grocery business at all. It's even harder when you're trying to feature flavors that are still unfamiliar to a lot of Americans. Sometimes you got to think on your feet, like Chitra did when she was at a food industry convention, talking to a buyer from Whole Foods. Chitra mentioned curry ketchup, which was something she made at home sometimes, but which wasn't actually a real product that her company was making yet. She was like, that sounds interesting. I'd like to try it. And we were like, okay. And we were in California at the time. And it was like, I don't have this product. But she was like, can you send it to me? I'm going back to Austin, just like, you know, overnight it to us. And we were like, oh my God. So we we like literally <laughs> went back to this Airbnb we were staying in. We made ketchup. We mixed it with the tomato achar, sent it to her. And then we got a phone call from her. And she was like, I love it. Everybody loves it here. We want to take it national. And she was like, can you also develop a curry mustard for me? And I was like, yeah. (laughs) That episode's up now. Check it out. All right, back to my conversation with Alexander Smalls. After leaving the opera world behind, Alexander turned his attention to opening his first restaurant. He would call it Cafe Beulah, Beulah being a traditional Southern name and the name of one of his favorite aunts. He had never run a restaurant, but he knew how to cook especially after running his catering company for years. And he definitely knew how to throw a party. Over his years singing, he says every penny he made went right back into his next party. So when he decided to open a restaurant, he knew exactly what kind of place he wanted it to be. He told people he was taking his famous living room parties public. In fact, Cafe Bueller looks a lot like this. And I will tell you that the ceiling fans in this apartment are from Cafe Bueller. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> Alexander had the concept. Now he needed the funding. He bought a book from the Columbia Business School bookstore and learned how to write a business proposal. He began asking friends to invest, and they responded. Some of the first people to write him checks were Felicia Rashad, Percy Sutton, and Toni Morrison. In 1994, Cafe Beulah opened its doors. It was a bistro, right smack in the middle of Park Avenue South, where a bunch of other fancy new restaurants were opening up. That location was very intentional. I opened in that community because I wanted to make a point. I needed to be where you didn't expect me to be. What were some of the dishes from the menu? Oh my God, well, I can tell you. Probably the most famous was the deconstructed gumbo. I took gumbo out of the pot and put it really on a plate as an elegant uh, dish with all the ingredients uh, separate, and then the uh, gumbo gravy uh, poured over um, or underneath. It was just visually the most beautiful plate and very expensive for the time. All the white folks would say to me, oh my God, the food is so incredible, but where did all these beautiful black people come from? Where, I mean, my goodness, I, I've never seen such a display of beautiful uh, people of color, so well-dressed. And, and, and I understood what they wanted to say, but, you know, but that was their reaction. And the black people were like, how do you get white people to come to a black-owned restaurant? <laughs> the biggest problem for African-Americans has always been, oh, oh, we want it there. Is that a place we're supposed to go? You know, white people don't sit at home thinking, is it a black-owned or white-owned restaurant? Well, black people have to. It's, it's in the culture. Um, so Cafe Beulah is one of those places that belong to the people. I mean, the whole idea that African-American food could be fine dining, could be paired with wines, could be served on porcelain plates and elevated um, beyond what they considered a hot mess on a plate, but also good. So a lot of the food at Cafe Beulah was inspired by the same low country cuisine that Alexander grew up with. But at the restaurant, he didn't call it low country cooking. He called it Southern Revival. He wanted people to understand where it came from, but also that it was his own artistic interpretation of it, something new. I'd have people come in all the time going, well, th this isn't how my mother makes the uh, black eyed peas. And I'm, you know, my response, of course, in my head is, well, do I look like your mama? <laughs> you <know? laughs> I was in a unique position that I could do uh, things that other African-American uh, chefs who were probably more talented and skilled than I, but not necessarily more creative. But I could tell the story of the Black kitchen, of the African American kitchen. They worked for people who weren't interested in them doing that. It's, it's interesting to me, Alexander, because when I listen to your description of Cafe Beulah, it sounds a lot like some of the restaurants that have opened in recent years in America and have gotten a lot of attention. Kwame Anwachi's place yes. in D.C., which I went to, and we had him on the show a little while back, Mashama Bailey yep. um, and others. And it's interesting to me because it seems like certainly you know, people who were tapped into the New York dining scene in the 90s certainly knew Cafe Beulah, and people who are familiar with your work certainly know it. But... When I hear or see stories written about these new places, the characterization is often as if, like, this is a totally new concept. This, this elevation of Absolutely. black and African foodways to this high-end high fine dining uh, environment is totally new. Well, that's also institutional. This is white journalism. And this is how you kidnap people's culture 
a racist culture, you essentially assign this false narrative that so-and-so is the first Black person to do this. The first by, and, and I mean, even if you put that on me, that was Edna Lewis before me, Leah Chase, uh, you know, um, um, the whole concept of that is basically how we erase historical value of a particular race of people. And it's interesting because before when I started, it was discrimination because of my color. And now uh, I, ha- I face a different kind of um, discrimination, which is age. You know, so, I mean, now that it's Vogue and Chic, I have aged out of the conversation. Can I, how how old are you now? I am 70. And um, how can you tell that that is something people are holding against you? Well, I mean, try selling a TV show. Try, well, even trying to sell a book. I mean, I have three books and essentially positioning me as the voice of anything that isn't tied to, you know, a historic or academic moment, uh, it's it's not what the trend is all about, you know. So uh, it's, it's subtle, um, but convenient. And I think it's something that you don't notice until it happens to you. I mean, I find myself more relevant than ever in the conversation, but that doesn't mean that the people who create the platform for the conversation would agree with that. You seem like the kind of person who is just, you're never going to stop moving. Oh, no, no, no. Cafe Beulah got great reviews, including a nice write-up in the New York Times. Alexander opened two more places, both featuring his spin on Southern food. But as we all know, running restaurants is hard, even if your food is great. After about four years, money was tight and Alexander was spread very thin. He closed his places and decided to take a break from the business. But as usual, he didn't stop moving. He spent the next 10 years traveling the world and tracing the path of the African diaspora from Africa to Asia and South America. He dedicated himself to learning about the various cuisines that were born out of the slave trade. He did keep catering and throwing great parties, and he would sing professionally every now and then. But he spent most of the time exploring, creatively and literally. By the early 2010s, he was ready to get back into the restaurant business and to put all he had learned into practice. This time, he decided to open his place in Harlem, at the center of black culture in New York. He worked with the chef J.J. Johnson, who had been trained in classical European techniques, but who grew up in a Caribbean household. Together, they created an Afro-Asian-American menu for a restaurant that would be called The Cecil. We really revolutionized the conversation of essentially how through slavery, Africa changed the global culinary footprint. And that's what the season was all about. I traveled all over Africa, all over Asia, and South America, Brazil, uh, Caribbean, uh, North America, and Europe, trying to understand the contributions and creating a flavor profile that spoke to what Africa's footprint looked like in a global context. Give me some examples of some of the things that were on the menu when you opened the Cecil. Oh, my. There was very interesting dishes. We basically married a lot of the spice profile of the African diaspora. You know, we highlighted some Brazilian dishes. We brought the suya profile from West Africa. And then, of course, the Asian influence with the oxtail dumplings. What a lot of people don't realize is that there were African slaves in China that date back to the 1500s. And when 
the New World abolished slavery, particularly in the Caribbean, a lot of Asians, Chinese, and Indians were brought over to do that work. And of course, they were infused with the African community because they were still considered substandard. In 2019, Alexander and J.J. expanded on these ideas in a cookbook called Between Harlem and Heaven, which won a James Beard Award. Around the same time, Alexander was starting work on an ambitious new project, a Harlem food hall that he described as the Cecil on steroids. But when the pandemic hit, that got scrapped. Meanwhile, though, across the world, plans were being laid for Expo 2020 Dubai, a six-month-long event, kind of like a World's Fair. It would have exhibitions on technology, architecture, sports, and... You guessed it, food. Someone involved in the expo saw Alexander's proposal for the Harlem Food Hall and said, hey, why don't you come do this in Dubai instead? Alexander dove right in. As he traveled back and forth between his home in Harlem and his work in Dubai, his creative focus evolved once again. At Cafe Beulah, he explored African-American food. Then he zoomed out and spent years tracing the culinary paths of the African diaspora. Now he was following all those roads back to the source, to Africa itself. But he didn't just want this to be a history lesson. He decided his food hall would focus on African food today. I really wanted this to be authentic, and I wanted it to say more than my imagination or, uh, or my proposition. So I, I wanted to bring in culinary practitioners who were at the top of their game reinventing the African culinary and that's what I did. Alexander invited six African chefs to open up in the food hall. One was Mame So, a pastry chef from Dakar, Senegal, who served a popsicle with baobab fruit, hibiscus, vanilla, and peanuts. Then there was Chef Coco, who serves jollof rice, but in the form of a croquette or a risotto. The name of this whole project? It's called al Kibulan. What does that mean? al Kibulan means mother of mankind. It was the first... Uh, name of Africa. It's Arab. And the Europeans showed up, couldn't say Al-Kibulat, so they changed it to Africa. <laughs> no surprise. <laughs> <laughs> Al-Kibulat opened in Dubai last October and ran until the expo wrapped up at the end of March. Alexander's project was a critical and commercial success. It was the hit of hits of, and centerpiece of Dubai. Did extremely well. Now he's working on opening a version of this food hall in New York next year. After that, he has his sights set on London, D.C., Atlanta, Paris, Lagos, and Accra. I can do with Alcabulan tenfold what I could do with just a standoff along uh, boutique concept. I mean, essentially, uh, in this process, I have transformed into an activist advocate for the food of the African diaspora. I mean, we have well over 600 years of institutional racism to overcome. And uh, it's extraordinary when you introduce the wealth of, of this food and people are like, oh, my God, this is what I thought African food was, you know. And so getting beyond and, and over the prejudice and, and the stereotypes. And, and this is why I opened Cafe Beulah, because no one wanted to allow any Black person that was cooking to breathe outside of soul food. That stigma became everything. And we didn't exist outside of that context. Today, Alexander sees Alkibulin as an important experience for everyone. All those people who didn't know what African food was. And all those people who did, who needed to be reintroduced. And as I said to you earlier, you know, with Black people, food is currency. It is wealth. 
when you sort of trace the arc from Cafe Beulah to Alkabulin, certainly you can see a similar goal at work. But I'm curious how how you have changed and evolved over that time. How is or how are you different? I no longer see myself as the bright-eyed, you know, culinary creator, the person that has to make the sauce. I'm now a mentor and I'm on a mission. My my role is to not only advance the cause and concept of African food, but to bring the village with me. Alexander may not be the person who makes the sauce in the restaurant anymore, but in his apartment, different story. Should we cook something? I think we should. All right, let's do it. (laughs) To the kitchen. To the kitchen we go. I wanted to cook something quintessentially Alexander, something connected to the low country, but with his own creative spin on it. So I said to him, you tell me what you want to cook. What dish fits? Without hesitation, he responded, Grits. Grits. Foundational Southern food, really. And grits are this wonderful grain that uh, has always been at the root and heart of the African-American kitchen. Okay. So I'm going to get our skillet going. So you see, I put in a restaurant stove. into. Alexander gets the grits going in one pot, then he coats shrimp in a mixture of flour and spices, drops them into the skillet. Yes. He takes out the shrimp, sets those aside, and then fills the skillet with onions, peppers, and celery. Can I say, Alexander, it's days like this that I don't regret my job. (laughs) (laughs) What'd you do today at work? I went to Alexander Small's house and he made shrimp and grits. That was my job today. (laughs) Good job. Not a bad day to go to work. Not a bad. And you get to eat. That's right. (laughs) Smells fantastic. (laughs) Smells so good. As Alexander stands over the stove, he reaches for one spice after another, sprinkling cilantro, cumin, sage, herbs de Provence, and suya spice into the pan, working it all into a gravy. Just to, uh, to make clear, folks listening at home, um, there is not a measuring cup or in measuring sight. spoon. <laughs> <laughs> Nowhere to be found. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> just didn't happen. This is pure flavor. You just got it all going right now. It's all going. And I'm going to hit it with a little bit of red wine. Oh. Hey. (laughs) Now, is this how they did it in the low country? Uh, No. (laughs) But but, but, But this is, see, Alexander, I feel like that was the moment that we just crossed over. Right. You added that red wine, and suddenly we're taking something from right. the past, and we're adapting, and which we're is evolving. The point, which is absolutely the point, which is what I have sought to do with African cuisine. It's this elevation here. You have to taste the gravy. Oh, my gosh. This right. is where we're going. All right. I don't want to burn my tongue. It'll be don't so tra- It would be so tongue. tragic if I burned my tongue. Just blow on it. That's right. what we do. We blow. Oh, my God. Okay, the shrimp just went... Into the gravy. It's just firing on all cylinders. It's acidic and a little spicy, but right. rich and creamy mm-hmm. and a little sweet. And then you have that touch of lemon. Yeah, and, and that, um, I mean, the acidity from the wine. I mean, the, yes. the, uh, you know. Mm. This is a very adult dish. <laughs> <laughs> In case you were wondering. But voila. And now comes, this is a surprise. Oh, he just went to the toaster oven. What's coming now? 
the chicken that oh, I fried. Oh, snap. I fried this chicken <laughs> earlier, and now I'm going to make... He's cutting up the leftover fried chicken. The earlier made. I'm sorry, yes, right. <laughs> fried chicken. Pre-made. <laughs> <laughs> the earlier prepared. Uh, we have the other skillet with the shrimp and the vegetables and the and the stock going, all the spices, and then we have grits. This is... And you know what else we have? We have lunch. <laughs> it is done and ready. Oh, yes. And it is all of this. I'm thinking to bring the pots to the table. Let's do it. Can you handle that? I, absolutely. I'll follow your lead. Great. I love that. Okay. Would you like some iced tea or are you staying with water? Mm, I'll do, I mean, do you have iced tea ready? This is a southern home. Okay. <laughs> we always have iced tea. Alexander sets the pot of grits and two skillets on the table. Here we go. Grits go down. One has the shrimp and that gravy. The other is the pre-made fried chicken with chicken gravy, which had been simmering on a back burner to concentrate its flavors even more. Now it was time to dig in. And the mark of a good meal, everything gets very quiet. How are we doing? Did you try the chicken? Mm. I got to move on to that. <laughs> Oh my God, the chicken with that gravy. Mm. Woo! This is second nature for me because the flavor and destination of arrival in this dish has been my life. So I know where we're landing. I may change the path home. I may add a little this, a little that, you know, but I know where we have to land. For example, you know, uh, the red wine. I've made this with white wine, rosé, and interestingly enough, um, champagne. And it's the, the 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 finish is always different, but always so incredible. Mm. Eat. <laughs> <laughs> That is the one and only Alexander Smalls, restaurateur, opera singer, renowned party host, and the author of the cookbooks Meals, Music, and Muses, Grace the Table, and Between Harlem and Heaven. He's also recently gotten back into singing. In June, he released his first solo album, a collection of spirituals called Let Us Break Bread Together. We'll listen to a bit of one track from the album called Hush. want to win a copy of Meals, Music, and Muses, you can sign up for our newsletter by August 31st. If you're already a subscriber, you're already entered into this and all of our giveaways, so please sign up now at sporkful.com slash newsletter. A couple more final notes. Alexander plans to open the New York version of Alkibulin in 2023. And next week, he'll be receiving the Lifetime Achievement Award at Food & Wine Magazine's Family Reunion event. 
This show is produced by me along with senior producer Emma Morgenstern and producers Andres O'Hara and Johanna Mayer. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson. Additional editing by Tanaka Maria Muvavadidwa. Our engineer is Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Eric Eddings and Colin Anderson. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Brett Smith from Dothan, Alabama, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. Better.